Greetings and welcome to Eastern Promise, the best of the guests. I'm Mike Rigby, and thank you for joining me for another choice pick from the Eastern Promise archive. I've selected these interviews based on download figures and whether they were initially split over two episodes. And lucky what I have for you. My chat with a man who is a construction guru, sustainability advocate, director, educator and holder of more chairs than Gerald's home furnishings department. A staunch voice for the East of England and someone whose opinion is deeply respected. If he gets behind a project, development or scheme, then axiomatically it's worthy of your time. He is, of course, Saul Humphrey. So hearken now, by the power of Zoom, to this interview, recorded in April 2021 and presented here in its complete form for the first time. Well, in my uh, embryonic youth, I, I joined RG Carter uh, via the government's youth training scheme at the tender age of 16. So that's where my story begins. I spent 33 years with RG Carter, who are one of the leading construction companies in the region and um, enjoyed pretty well every minute. I then joined Morgan Sindel and spent a couple of years there, um, and that was great too. And for the last couple of years, I've been um, leading my own consultancy business, trying to help other customers' clients deliver their aspirations in the industry. A bit of management consultancy, a bit of project management. You could say it's kind of poacher turned gamekeeper, but I, I don't think it's quite as a one-sided or binary as that. I think it's a collaborative team effort, and together we get on really well nicely. Along my journey, I've done a few other things to sort of complement my business career, and I'm pleased to chair Building Growth for New Anglia Local Enterprise Partnership. And I've done a little bit of work with the universities uh, in the region, particularly those that focus on construction and related subjects. I'm probably one of those unusual people that's got a PhD in in, in a construction-related subject, so I, I, might, I may get called more than others for that, that sole reason. Do you find there's any kind of project you're specialising in? That's a good question, Mike. Why me? And I think it's perhaps projects that are unusual or different, um, where people have got a challenge which is not repetition. I think if it's a a local authority or county council building another school, they're they're really good at that. And there's established pathways to deliver those projects effectively. I think if you're doing a one-off first unique country house, um, paragraph 79, complex dwelling or you're doing um, a new garden village for 6,000 homes where you want to make a truly sustainable place or a a Briam outstanding business centre. If it's a first, if it's something iconic or challenging, maybe there's a perception that I could help with that and and I'll do my best. Anyone following your LinkedIn post will see a very evident interest and passion for addressing the challenges of climate change. Where's that come from and and how do you characterise that? Yeah, um... I'm not claiming to be Greta Sundberg. I'm not as impassioned as some, but I genuinely do believe that we can build back better, to use a, a, a well-known political phrase. We, we have a fantastic point in time to align our offering, to accelerate the paradigm shift towards more sustainable construction. Construction's 
hugely responsible for a lot of global emissions, much of it through cement and concrete and products that go into the embodied carbon of the building, but even more so on the operational side of buildings. And I think if we got the construction industry in order, if we were building more sustainable um, dwellings, more sustainable factories, offices, then we'd do an awful lot um, in our quest to get to carbon zero. So yeah, if I can help on that journey, then I'm pleased to do so. The Construction Leadership Council earlier this month put out a review saying that on decarbonising infrastructure, the progress that had been made over the previous eight years had been good, but it's still a huge challenge to make the government's already pretty stretching target of 2050 a reality. They've now, in response to the latest Climate Change Committee report, brought that forward to 2035. And what do you think the industry can do, particularly in this region, to meet that challenge? I think that's a really good question. I think a, a third of UK FTSE 100 businesses have now made zero carbon commitments. I suspect by the end of the year, that'll be a 50%. I suspect by the end of next year, it'll be 100%. I think we're on a good pathway now towards all responsible businesses recognising there is only one way to get to point B, um, and that's a more sustainable low carbon journey. Construction's got to emulate that, and I think the Construction Leadership Council have shown good leadership, good vision in signposting a direction of travel. I don't want to be pedantic, but there is a big difference between embodied carbon and operational carbon. And a lot of the focus right now is on reducing operational carbon, the carbon that we emit from our heating systems and our electricity consumption in in buildings. But there's a whole lot more that's embodied and there's set before the occupants even move in. As soon as the, the dwelling, as soon as the house is built, perhaps up to 70% of the carbon that it's that'll be emitted in its whole lifetime has already been emitted before the first person moves into the house. So I think our focus is to shift towards looking at embodied carbon as much, if not more so, than the operational side. And with that, it's things like the products we choose to use, it's the types of dwellings we build, it's the size, it's the location. It's a, it's a really complex piece of work to um, make a more sustainable place. And it isn't just in avoiding cement and promoting cross-laminate timber instead, because it's absorbed carbon during its lifetime, it's done the sequestration. It's, it's also about creating a place where people can walk to work, where they can walk to the park, where they can cycle, um, where they don't have to jump in the car, where they're accessible to public transport, where they might decide to leave a different sort of lifestyle. And I think creating environments such as that takes more than one stakeholder to get there. It takes more than one person, more than one business. So I think it's, it needs a collaboration of efforts. It needs public sector leadership. It needs private sector empowerment to, to get to that end game. But I think there's a lot of companies who are starting to do the right thing. And if more could emulate BrewDog and Patagonia and Ikea, that would be, that would be great. So, yeah, I, I, I think there's more we can do. There's legislative change happening with things like future home standards, which you know, we won't be connecting new homes to the gas main for much longer. You could question why we're still doing it now. If we know it's wrong, why carry on doing it? But the truth is it's cheaper to do that right now. And if we want more affordable homes, then that's the way to be most cost effective with the capital cost of building a house. But in terms of the lifetime cost and the impact, it's, it really is time to turn off the gas. Is there a sense that it's difficult for building companies, large or small, to take those steps now when they don't yet know the shape of the legislation that might be coming down the track? Yes, it is difficult. Construction companies are 
defined in many ways, but there are a lot of construction companies that are building precisely what the employer has specified, what the architect has drawn, what the engineer has detailed. They are only putting together and assembling what's been uh, designed by others. So they may, in some, in some instances, have very little influence on what is done and how it's done. In other circumstances, they may be acting as a developer or a speculative house builder, and it's really their choice what they build and how. So I can't generalize too much because there's very different circumstances depending on how you approach it. But I think contractors, designers have all got a responsibility to demonstrate a more sustainable solution where one exists and encourage a client or a developer to consider the more sustainable alternative. And, and that's a sensible way forward. There is a charge made by elements of the construction industry that specialise in net zero construction that the industry as a whole is, and their words not mine here, slow, inefficient, expensive, resistant to change and indifferent to the needs of tomorrow. What levers are there in the region to address that? And if indeed uh, you agree with the charge? Yeah, I, well, I, I think it's hard to deny it completely, although it hurts to admit it completely too. I think. Many of the accusations can be thrown at construction. It is difficult to build a unique piece of construction, a unique building out in the elements on a piece of ground that's not been touched before, which may or may not contain services and uh, elements that we're not expecting to find, contamination and un unforgiving ground conditions and unforeseen obstructions. To then build something that's never been done before, it's a, it's a prototype. So the first time you do anything, you're liable to have one or two problems and it's not going to go as efficiently as you might like. It's not like building a car. I know it's easy to compare and contrast a more a construction with a more efficient industry. But if you're making your 10,000th unit identically in a factory, one would hope you'd be getting it absolutely right and you'd have nailed the efficiency. Construction does have this inherent um, challenge that it's harder to repeat that out in the open. I think greater standardization, greater repetition, um, a move towards more modern methods of construction. Mark Farmer's been one of many who's been championing that shift towards an emphasis on pre-manufactured value, a shift towards that standardization where an economy of scale could allow us to get it right more often, more efficiently. And frankly, we need to, not just in terms of quality and sustainability, but also because we have huge skill shortages and with an absence of trained labour and a demographic challenge, which says that more people are retiring than joining, the industry, the construction industry has to find a way to build more efficiently with less people. So yeah, <laughs> guilty as charged, but recognise work in progress and a shift gradually towards that more progressive future, an evolution towards that, which I think is incumbent on all stakeholders in the industry to promote and encourage. I'm, I'm a governor of one of the colleges re uh, locally and pleased that there's a greater number than ever uh, of young people joining construction and uh, entering the industry. What we need to do is make sure there's a follow through, that they don't just do one or two years at college, but they do join the industry. They do have a great apprenticeship, that we encourage a more diverse number of applicants from different backgrounds, different genders. And I think an industry that's embracing modern methods of construction, low carbon homes, digital design is probably more attractive to a young person than one that's all about concrete and bricks and mud and drains. So I think we need to get the language right to make the industry even more appealing. 
So I, so I see a, um, a future that does those things, that does all the good uh, that we were talking about in terms of being more sustainable, more modern methods of construction, and embracing more young people to enter the industry so that we can deliver that. It's a bit of a, a strange analogy, but we're kind of laying the foundations now for a more sustainable future. And then in a construction language, that seems like the right sort of phraseology to use. Who are the disruptors in the industry today? Uh, who's the next Uber, the next Deliveroo? Who's the next Amazon for the construction industry? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of loath to name anybody in particular for fear of favour, but there are some very well-known global merchant banks who are taking significant positions in businesses that are making modular homes that are just reminding us that they could shift the balance. There's pension funds that are uh, shifting into that place. It's, it's early stages of their arrival, but it's very interesting what they're doing. There's also moves from some of the more established contractors, construction companies, who are one or two of whom already are at net zero in their operational stage and are promoting more and more modern methods. So I think we see some of the established players moving fast and properly shouting about their credentials. And we see some uh, disruptors from outside the sector coming in and promising to do things faster, better, as you say, whether it's an Uber, whether it's a Tesla, whatever it might be that shifts the dial um, in our industry. Was it John Cotter who said we need to um, reduce complacency and uh, uh, increase urgency to get things done? And I think something like that is what's required. But it is moving a lot faster than what it was. There's already a gear change. I'd not say there couldn't be one or two more. In its recent CEO survey, PwC found businesses focused on a no-regrets recovery, which is about taking the decisions you've got the power to take and that cannot or should not be put off. So what does a no-regrets recovery look like for the construction industry? And is this a clean sheet of paper moment? If so, what's on your sheet of paper? I think now is a really good moment to pause and say, what should good growth look like? Is there, an, is there an obsession with growth? Is growth even sustainable? And I think the answer to that is only if it's green, only if it's clean, only if it's based on a low carbon trajectory. But I think that is what we have to seek. And I think there are moves to do that. Whether we can afford to stop, do nothing for a year and contemplate and write some reports, I, I, I fear not. I think we have to keep moving. And it's great for the economy and jobs and the population that actually, already the economy has bounced back so fast. Certainly the construction sector is flying. That's good. But it would be good if it was flying in the right direction. And things like the future home standard coming, which promises uh, that all new homes will have uh, a zero carbon future. It can't come soon enough. It's It was drafted some years ago. It's been consulted upon. It's ready. Just press go. Just do it. So I think it is incumbent upon governments to lead by example and to implement strategies that would immediately shift the dial. Well, the future home standards only deals with um, low carbon homes. All the other buildings we build are not going to be restricted to that. So we need new building regulations. We need a new regime of regulatory powers that impose low carbon construction. It's great that some businesses, some architects, some engineers, some contractors, some developers are already doing it but it would be good if we made it mandatory so that 100% had to do it. And yeah, we have the capacity, the, the ability to do that now. So I wish we'd get on with it. I think it is incumbent upon us to do that and we have the ability to do that. There's no need to, no need to delay. Taking that forward and thinking about regeneration across the east of England, a lot of the buildings 
in this region are old. We have uh, the oldest housing stock in Europe with energy inefficiency and poor heat retention that worsens as the building ages. How should we best approach regeneration in this region, wearing a green hard hat, if you will, and addressing the damage that's being done to the environment by older housing stock? It's a really good question. I grew up in Goulston, uh, which is equidistant between Great Yarmouth and Lowestoft. I mentioned I'm a governor of East Coast College. Well, I'm a governor of East Coast College, and the, that's got campus in Yarmouth and Lowestoft. I uh, just recently joined the board as director of Equinox, which is Great Yarmouth Borough Council's um, house building property company. I'm doing a little bit of work with a, a consultant in Suffolk about doing something similar in that county. Um, I'm talking to you today from Norwich, so I, I care about these places. I'm intrinsically linked to them all um uh how do we well firstly why the the things like the future home standard is great at fixing those new homes that we build but if as a nation we manage to build three hundred thousand new homes a year that would be the first time in a, in many many years that we've meet that we've met that aspiration so we're not currently doing that and we haven't done for many many years but even if we did it would only affect one percent of the housing stock so what you're alluding to is that other 99% that remains inefficient and leaking carbon um, and still fired off a gas-fired boiler and single-glaze windows and no insulation in the walls, no cavity, no insulation in the roof. What the hell do we do to fix that? And I know the government's 10-point plan um, for a green industrial revolution is about addressing these things. Within the 10 points, there's one that focuses on construction. There's a quest to have 600,000 new um, heat pumps by 2028, I think. If we could shift that many homes off oil-fired or gas-fired heating systems towards um, a more energy-efficient, sustainable heat source, that would help. But we're kind of focusing on the way we heat the home, where we need to focus more on the, the reason why we're having to put so much heat into it. If we could deal with the fabric first, that would be a better way of um, addressing the need. So looking at the, the wall construction, looking at the windows, looking at the roof, they're all quite complex. And as you say, if you've got Victorian terrace homes, multiple occupiers, tenancies, different freehold structures, to address that is tough. And it'll be good to see how a Green Homes grant or a successor to it, whatever it might look like, addresses that. But I think there needs to be a real focus on that, on the existing stock and bringing together the, the complex solutions to each and every dwelling, each of which will be different. But it will have a lot of, a bit like kit of parts. I see that the solution will involve all the things I mentioned and more um, to varying degrees in different locations at different stages. But I think it will want some public sector intervention to get that to happen at scale. And it will need a subsidy or grant system to encourage that to be accelerated. So, yeah, that does need to be a priority. Aren't we going to have to be less worried about things like the vernacular, uh, the local vernacular, if we're going to get this done? Yeah, it's not a good question. So I, I, I sit here today looking over the river in Norwich in a conservation area. My, my home is a listed building. The the place the beauty of a place is really important and that creates the charm it creates the appeal if if we lose that as a, as a quest of seeking the more efficient end game then we lose something perhaps equally as important so i think we need to try and find a way of fixing the sustainable challenge beautifully aesthetically 
because that's important. If we if we lose the appeal of a place and we lose the history, then that's irrevocable. So I think it's it's beholding upon us all to do that um, with a light touch, to do that gracefully. According to the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, building back better means building back greener. Now, you talked earlier about your role in building growth, and I've attended many building growth meetings over the years, online and in person, and they've always been very interesting indeed. How would you like to see building growth go forward uh, and address the various challenges the industry faces and what kind of interventions can building growth offer? Yeah, uh, and kind of you to mention uh, building growth, Mike. I, you, you've more than attended, you've supported, and you've helped lead in your role with How Should Norfolk Grow and working alongside Richard Bacon. You've done just as much as anybody to drive that agenda. Uh, that really is appreciated. And I think we're addressing it in a similar way. I look at what Norfolk Construction Excellence Club is doing, what Norfolk Forum for Construction Industry is doing, building growth, others, the professional institutions. I think it's incumbent upon us all to share best practice to encourage and reward those who are moving furthest, fastest, doing best. Hopefully, they will succeed as a consequence of those efforts. And if we can share their their journey with others, hopefully others can avoid the pitfalls and the challenges that they are faced with in the in that embryonic position, when you do a first, it's often more difficult. Doing it a third time gets easier. So, yeah, I think you're right. We we can and should keep sharing the successes, but also let people know about how to avoid the problems that we've encountered too. I mean, some of the first passive houses that were built in the county were quite expensive, were quite difficult, were quite hard to achieve the air sealing requirements. But the skills and the techniques and the materials to achieve that become more common, become more understood. The costs come down, it becomes more affordable. And we suddenly shift the dial towards that being a viable alternative solution. So, yeah, I think celebrating that is important. That's terribly kind of you. Um, Technology is obviously going to have a huge role to play. The government's key factors, certainly in the energy white paper, have been affordability and competition. What, to your mind, is the most exciting bit of technology that the industry is looking to? I share some of your enthusiasm for these innovative solutions. I've watched the, the Hadrian bricklaying robot. I, I, too, like you, have watched the 3D printing of a dwelling. I have to say, I've never seen either of these those things happen in the flesh. So we, we can all access YouTube and TED Talks and the like and see these things happening around the world, but they really are the extreme minority. So if I haven't seen a bricklaying robot in the UK and I haven't seen a, a home 3D printed yet, then they're probably not that common. So which one will excite me the most? The one that excites me the most is the one that's most viable, that's the most real. And I, I fear at the moment they're, they're a little too far away to be tangible. If they can arrive, be accelerated, and be the paradigm shift, well, I don't mind which one it is. It's, it would be fantastic to watch. It's interesting how I think these, these solutions, these technological solutions, come from outside the sector. The concept of rebel ideas, the, um, the, the putting together um, voices from different backgrounds, from more diverse a tech or a digital or a, um, an arts perspective, manufacturing perspective, alongside a construction company, I think together we'll find better solutions. Um, whereas if we just look within our own narrow spectrum of what we've always done before, that might preclude it. I'm probably dodging the answer to your question because I don't know the answer. I don't know which one will prevail. I I love cross-laminated timber. I love sequestration. I, I love the idea of a product that can absorb carbon all of its life and that's locked in. 
the, the challenges of doing of using products such as that in a safe way in a in a post grenfell age where we're very very conscious of fire safety making sure that any product that appears combustible even when it isn't is incorporated in the right way is important and you know, rushing towards new technological solutions about thinking through all the consequences is is difficult so we, we have to move fast but not so fast that we make mistakes that we regret i'm very interested personally in the potential of augmented reality in terms of development in an engagement role where you might say you have all you need is a small van good wi-fi uh, and in enough sets of goggles, residents might pop in and you can show them this is the field and this is what it's going to look like. And you've got a much better sense than a drawing because you can load up um, the plans and walk around the place. Yeah, I've enjoyed that too. And it's um, a, a game changer. A bit like digital twins, a bit like BIM. There are digital solutions out there which will really help the industry. In truth, what they're helping us to do is to visualise what's being constructed or will be constructed or to understand it better if we're adjusting it later. The, the materials that go into making it may still be the same, but we'll understand them better. And if we can design it in three dimensions with all of the, in, you know, all of the parts coming together, together, we should have less clashes, less disorder. We can have more, uh, more, more beautiful, more sleek solutions. Um, so I certainly applaud that and have witnessed firsthand the benefits of that. HoloLens is one of those products that catch, captures that and allows us to see what we couldn't see on, two, on 2D, what you couldn't see in a plan, you can see with the goggles on. Yeah, that's great. And it also embraces the, the youth of today who may be more tech aligned, far more computer games than, than I might be. It's, it's a way of finding the spark in the interest and taking that on. So I think it's a win-win solution if we can do that. You touched on new settlements and we also talked about the vernacular. Are we, uh, to a certain extent, freed from worrying overly much about that? And to be clear, I'm not saying the vernacular is a bad thing. It's part of our cultural, social and human infrastructure that really allows places to live and breathe. But are we necessarily freed from a lot of that in a new settlement? Yes, you're absolutely right. If we're doing something new, it's a clean sheet of paper. We can put what we want there. I think the location is ever so important because it's that will determine how people behave. So I think ideally the new settlement should be somewhere reasonably approximate to existing infrastructure that we can access without huge expense. We, we do still have a need for cars. I, I fully support the access to train stations. It would be nice if we're not too far away from existing urban centres so that they can support this new settlement. But once we've got the right place that's a sustainable location, because it's in the right location, then we can use that blank sheet of paper to put on it the place that best emulates our vision. Um, and no, we're not constrained by having to be mock Georgian or faux Victorian. We don't actually need chimneys. We don't actually need open fires. We don't need to do some of the things that architecturally we thought we did. Equally, we don't need to make it look like some kind of 22nd century Tomorrow's World program where it's all glass and shiny and steel. There is somewhere in between. You know. Oh. Yeah, we could, but I think that for it to be sustainable, they probably shouldn't have too much steel, too much concrete, too much glass. We ought to think about products that uh, have a lower embodied carbon and complement a more energy efficient solution. But with that, 
if the location's right and the population's behaviors align with that location, if there's if there's workplaces, if there's employment in that same settlement or very close to it, then, then they complement each other. Then the, the people, I think, could walk to their place of work. Uh, they could jump in an, an EV, they could charge the EV at their home, which has been got its energy overnight from the photovoltaics on the roof. The heating's come from the air source heat pump or the ground source heat pump. It's that they could walk to the train station, they could cycle to the school. So that the place wants to reflect all of those virtues. Exactly what the buildings look like is almost secondary, providing we've got the right component parts that complement. To what extent is the future of larger settlements in Norfolk, Suffolk and Cambridgeshire going to be vehicle free? Obviously, there's going to be a large number of petrol and diesel vehicles on the road for some time to come, even though new ones are not being built. Yeah, it's a good question. If, you, if you're in the city, it's taking orange, take it switch. If you're, if you're in a 15 minutes walking zone, um, you really don't need the car. It's, it's more of a pain to get in it and to move it and to park it and to go again and pay for the parking. It's easier to walk. In January, when it's snowing or raining, the temptation to jump in the car suddenly comes back, doesn't it? It's, 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 it the emphasis shifts. So we, we need to create a, a methodology where you can access alternative methods in a city because things are close enough to make it possible. And I think like we're now talking on a Zoom platform, it could have been Teams. If you'd have asked me 18 months ago how to access either of those things, I couldn't have told you. But I think in a, in a post-pandemic world, the acceleration of that platform has enabled us to conduct many more meetings remotely. That could ease the traffic on the roads if people can blend their working life with technological solutions that we now know have been out there for a long while. I think the the more difficult challenge is when you're in a rural location or semi-rural, you're creating a new settlement which is 50 miles from the city centre or 50 miles from the regional capital or 100 miles from London. We will need to have some form of transport to get to that place on occasion. How often may be less regular than it used to be. So I think the, the connect. The connection to the train station is probably the most important. That's my feeling. Let's, I'm kind of hoping the distance from the house to the train station is still quite, quite modest. So it's walkable, you could cycle it, you could get a local bus. Could be light gauge rail. I think that probably isn't too cost effective in many locations yet. So for me, the most affordable location is the one that's the most sustainable. The place which is already quite near a train station, quite near a trunk road, quite near a city is the right place for a settlement because you can do it there without huge investment. And if we aren't faced with the huge investment in the infrastructure, then that saving can produce a better place can produce more affordable homes, can produce more sustainable homes, can create a better environment where people can in enjoy life in an environment which has got the right ecological properties, the, the, the behaviours will emulate the location. And that's, that's what, so the next settlement, wherever it might be, is a huge question. And I think we are, you know, the local plans um, progressing in the greater Norwich region as we speak. And there'll be another one and five-year land supplies come round as frequently as the title suggests. We're looking out again for doing it. But right now we're seeing how fast houses are selling, how expensive they are. There's, a, there's an, an obvious reality that demand exceeds supply. So we, we have to build more and we're going to need to put them somewhere. 
So new settlements or new settlements seem inevitable. I just hope we can get the right ones in the right place built the right way. Anyone who's gone round the A11 at Kringleford near Norwich or through Long Stratton on the A140 will have seen, and this is not to single these guys out, but hoardings for big sky developments, which, uh, as you know, uh, is a Labco, a local authority building company. To what extent do we need local authorities to perhaps think more about patient capital and about taking more innovative steps uh, than perhaps just responding to pressure from Westminster, uh, from Whitehall for units, 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 fill the coffers back up because there's not anything coming down the pipe any other way? Mm. I think they're um, in a unique position. Most private sector developers have got shareholders who are expecting a return, which is cognizant of the risk. And if you're buying large swathes of land, spending years to obtain a consent, more years building dwellings, hoping to sell at a price which gives a return, there needs to be enough margin in that to justify the risk, to justify the exposure, to justify the cost of borrowing. A public sector client hasn't got quite the same profit motive. Creating a surplus is, of course, beneficial to the public purse, but it's not necessarily the sole priority. So I think those arm's length public sector led businesses are able to be more innovative in the solutions that they aspire to. And I think it is incumbent upon them to do to, to lead by example, to do something better, to do something that the private sector might find unaffordable or resist until they have to. So I would, I would, you know, I see perhaps the, the perfect scenario is where you blend the public sector's patient capital and access to the public loans board, relatively cheap finance and Homes England support, blending that with private sector commercial experience to get the perfect complementary collaborative team game to take the right settlement forward, combining those virtues, combining those assets. I think together we're always stronger, and I think that that could work well in this area. I like to try and end on a whimsical note, if I can, and ask you, what building in this region have you ever looked at and said, do you know, I wish I'd had something to do with that? That is a fantastic building. Is there a particular architectural edifice that you think, do you know, I wish, I wish? I've got three. Ah. Um, uh, I'll do them quickly, mm-hmm. um, because... I've- abuse the question by giving you three answers, not one. So I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> No, that's fine. Smith Street in Norwich recently won the Sterling Prize. Uh, RG Carter is the contractor that built that. I was with them when we secured the job, but I can't pretend that I was there to see the completed works. I think the Sterling Prize is a fantastic accolade. Um, and the, the, the social inclusion and sustainability of that particular development has helped put Norwich on the map. So it would be a miss of me not to mention Goldsmith Street, but it's one that personally got away. I didn't. I can't claim too much credit for that. Mm-hmm. 0.001%. Similarly, the the Forum in Norwich, I think, is a really nice building. I think Sir Michael Hopkins' design was brought together beautifully. I, I, I was with the contractor that built that building, but I had very little to do with the project. So again, I can't say too much credit for that. And finally, if I refer to it as the Willis building, you're probably the one I mean in Ipswich, Norman Foster designed, which I think is absolutely beautiful. It's it's timeless. And in a similar way, I know it's a fourth, but the Sainsbury Centre at UBA yeah. is a similar, iconic design. And it looks like it's cutting edge, 21st century, albeit they're, they're 30 years ago. Yes. Yeah. Remarkable how, how beautiful they look. 
So I, I claimed three. I, I gave you four. Oh, um, such generosity. Ten minutes longer. I'll think of ten more. <laughs> there's, there's lots that I've not touched, um, and because of it, they're more beautiful. Right. Well, uh, one last question. <laughs> I just want to go full Steve right with this. Is there anyone you'd like to say hello to? <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> there's many and varied um, <laughs> a wife Helen two children Isabel Emily many friends and family many business acquaintances uh, I, I thank everybody who's ever helped me and I and I hope I can help them in some small way in the future and I, and I thank you Mike for this opportunity That's... and for what Eastern promise promises I think it's, it's, it's great thank you thank you so much and uh, you are very definitely a gentleman and a scholar it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on eastern promise today thank you so much and i'm sure i will be speaking to you again very soon saul humphrey thank you so much thanks mike all the very best saul humphrey is undoubtedly a gentleman and a scholar thank you to him and thank you to you too eastern promise returns proper on the 12th of january where we'll be booting into the East of England's game sector. And, fear not, more Best of the Guests are still to come. <laughs>